Okay. All resuscitologists, we are go, no go for podcasting. Pre-hospital. Go. Emergency. Go. Anesthesia. Go. Pediatrics. Go. Trauma. Go. ICU. Go. Resuscitologist. We are go for podcasting. Welcome to Resuscitology, the impending doom episode. This is about the talk and die patient. Patients that we think about at the end of the shift, in the pub a month later, lying awake years later. The patients that when we meet to them, they are talking, but under our care, they rapidly die. There's a number of pathologies that can give rise to this clinical presentation, but the point of this podcast is to help you recognize the patient who is going to be dead within the next hour from a sudden acute illness. I'm joined with my resuscitology friends and colleagues, Jeff, Brian, Nat, and Libby, and we're going to talk about some cases that describe this particular uh, appearance of patients. Brian, why don't you kick things off by telling us about that chap you looked after the other day? Thanks, Cliff. So uh, I had a case that came in literally just a little bit over a week ago. We were uh, on an ED shift on a Saturday morning, actually about 10 a.m., and the paramedics did a bat phone or a Code 3 call to say they had just gone to a 67-year-old male cyclist, reasonably fit, who was seen to just suddenly become unwell, get off his bike and just collapse on the ground. There was no history of pain um, or anything focal. And the paramedics, for all intents and purposes, thought he looked like a STEMI. And they were quite flummoxed then when he didn't have a STEMI on ECG. He was tachycardic, pulse rate about 125. And they said his pulse or his blood pressure was 60 systolic. And that immediately raised alarm bells in my mind. So based on that um, bat call, we obviously got a resuscitation uh, team ready. And I'm not sure why, but what worried me was there was no history of trauma. He's obviously on his bike, so he was well that morning. No MI. And yet this fellow had a what I would call a critically low blood pressure and was very tachycardic. I don't usually do this, but I actually... Um, went out to the ambulance bay and as they were reversing the ambulance I opened the back doors and looked in at this patient and from the foot end I could see that there was an agitated patient sweaty and essentially trying to get off the bed and was really sick looking is how I describe him. The other notable feature was that he had air hunger so he was gasping for breath trying to take these big um, negative pressure breaths in Um, from the end of the bed. How did the paramedics appear? Were they stressed? Were they upset? Were they struggling to manage this patient? Was that part of the overall sense of the scene? Yeah, good question. One of the challenging things for the paramedic was obviously that they were trying to get control of this guy. They were obviously very mindful that he was critically unwell and obviously using sedative to try and control him was potentially quite dangerous. So I think rightfully they didn't give him much in the way of, of sedation or drugs to control his agitation. He had pulled an oxygen mask off. He had a peripheral line which was pulled out. So essentially they uh, arrived with a agitated 
shocked patient, but he didn't seem to meet any specific criteria of illness. So we have a man who is agitated, he's pale, he's sweaty, his last blood pressure was 60 systolic, he had air hunger. Libby, any of those things ring alarm bells for you? All of that patient picture uh, immediately makes me gravely concerned about this patient. This is the patient that unless you can treat whatever the pathology behind it is and improve things, this patient is well and truly on the way to dying. The air hunger, that's something that I think that you see a million times and it's not until you consciously appreciate what the what's going on there and go, oh my goodness, that's a sign of a critically ill patient. Then you can sort of write it off as something that is you know, or it's respiratory or it's this, but it's actually a very clear sign of someone who is at the end of their tether. All their compensatory mechanisms are failing. The sweatiness, we I think we all talk about the sweatiness as being a really, really indicative sign of the super, super sick patient, the super hypoperfused patient. But for me, it's actually when the sweating stops that I become gravely concerned. And I'm not talking about the sweating stopping because you've done amazing interventions to improve their perfusion and the numbers are improving. I'm talking about the patient that they've still got the BP of 60, they're still tachycardic at 140, they've still got the air hunger, they're agitated and all of a sudden they stop sweating. That to me is potentially the point of no return towards death. Yeah, I just wanted to add some context to what Libby's talking about. And my colleague from when I worked in the UK, Simon Carley, worked with some computer software designers to build up a simulated patient. And they they took some vital signs and the physical appearance of this uh, computer-generated patient, and they made him bleed to death over a period of time. And they showed this video to a lot of clinicians. And universally, although there was lots of concern about this patient, the point at which everybody becomes visibly uncomfortable watching this guy bleed to death is the point at which his sweating stops. So I think that's a really valuable thing to be able to put a name to and to put your finger on. It's fascinating. Actually, coming back to uh, Libby's point, I've never actually consciously notice that definitely these patients when they come in they're extremely adrenalized their sympathetic system is completely turned on we all know how hard it is to secure iv lines in these patients and often they just they slip out we can't stick them to the skin there is actually some physiological basis to what libby and nat are talking about and they mainly talk around two phases of shock one is compensatory mechanism where your sympathetic system is completely turned on your adrenals are firing and you're somewhat maintaining blood pressure if you can um, but eventually that blood pressure will go down perfusion will decrease as in our patient and then the phase two or next phase is when the compensatory mechanisms completely fail and they're exhausted and they call that sympatho inhibition um, and essentially the parasympathetic system is overcomes the sympathetic tone that is now uh, waning and that's when we see essentially no real palpable blood pressure the patient braddies down and they become asystolic so i think uh, libby your point on that the point at which they stop sweating is a really good marker that if your shocked patient was sweating and now they're not either you've resuscitated them or they're about to die 
These pre-terminal hemodynamics are really fascinating. And there's at least one study of patients on ICU with invasive monitoring who are dying and not resuscitated that shows the pattern of hemodynamic collapse follows a fairly predictable course. And interestingly, the average systolic blood pressure before blood pressure then becomes essentially meaningless or unrecordable was in the the high 40s, low 50s. So really, when you're getting a warning that a blood pressure is 60, that's oftentimes the last decent blood pressure you get. The next one is, oh, hang on, I the blood pressure machine's not picking up. Oh, I can't feel a pulse. Quick, press the crash buzzer. The blood pressure of 60 isn't the time to run in a bit of crystalloid and go and see a few more patients and come back and see how they're doing. This is a critical pre-terminal blood pressure where the team needs to get busy. This air hunger concept of pulling the mask off, and it's something I've seen reproducibly in terminal patients, acutely terminal patients, is this concept that they have such a massive minute volume, large respiratory rates, that 15 litres through a Hudson mask with small entrained outside air is almost asphyxiating these patients. They feel like they're suffocating because they can't get the the air in that they want to get in at that point where they are struggling to get any respiratory function. And and we've seen patients, uh, even when they're anaesthetized, have a, a like a terminal gulp as these sort of end stage signs of uh, the impending cardiovascular collapse. And I think that what often goes with this is this brain failure concept that they you can explain to them till you're blue in the face, pardon the pun, that they need to hold the mask on and they need to stay still and they need to stay in the bed, but they have this uncontrollable, irrational restlessness. They've got to come, climb out of bed. They've got to take the mask off. They've got to get out of the way because I need to go somewhere. I need to get out of the environment of where I am to uh, to go somewhere else because this is a, a point of fear or a point of irrationality. Their brain, their cortex is no longer functioning and they're going almost to midbrain functioning at this point. One of the fascinating observations I've had in resuscitation in patients who are completely shocked is that loss of higher cortical function. Repetitive questions from uh, clinicians asking the patient, where does it hurt? Where is it sore? What's wrong with you? And often there's a perception that the patient just won't tell them. But actually, there's an innate response that Jeff just mentioned where they're trying to actually just survive. And there is little point in repetitive questioning. You will not get an answer if you don't get an answer the first time you certainly won't get one the second time and it's pointless continuing to quiz them yeah it's frustrating for the clinician because they want to try and do their normal pattern of history examination treatment pathways but it's almost like the cabc of bleeding you need to start your interventions before you're finding out the information of what you're going through next and so uh, i think it's a really complex operation to be able to deal with when you're inexperienced of dealing with the terminal patient and Cliff, there's a gastrointestinal urinary system type response, isn't there, that occurs with some of these patients? Yeah, I think Libby's the expert there. Um, because as a pre-hospital provider, it's something that you and many paramedics have noticed, isn't it? The death dump or the pre-terminal turd. What, what happens there? Well, there's lots of, uh, I suppose, pathophysiologies that lead into it. But the number of critically ill pre-arrest patients or arrested patients that paramedics find in a toilet, uh, you couldn't quantify it. And it's this need to open their bowels, vomit, or they have urinary incontinence. It's not technically one of the ones that is listed as part of the hateful eight, 
But if we just recap on what the hateful eight are, I think we can. It, it shows that what we're talking about is exactly that: being pale, clammy, air hunger, venous collapse, hypotension, low or falling end tidal CO two, tachycardia or bradycardia, and altered mentation. And this is often applied to the bleeding patient, but even your medical patients who are presenting pre-arrest, you will often see this, this same hateful eight. And I think that what we're trying to highlight is that they're not these really obvious, you know, when we're talking about altered mentation, we're not talking about the unconscious patient, we're talking about the agitated patient. They're, they're, they're actually quite sensitive signs, they're not gross signs. And the agitated patient who can't answer my questions, that ticks the box of altered mentation. You don't need to wait until the patient's unconscious to tick that particular one of the hateful eight in these patients that have all of these other pale, clammy, air hunger, et cetera, et cetera, going on. It's because we see lots of agitated patients that are agitated in isolation, but it's the constellation of them all together, isn't it? And I think what you're talking about is this patient being on a trajectory to bad things happening. And to come back to your preterminal turd example, uh, the, the place that I saw most of the preterminal turd patients I ever saw was as a very junior doctor on night shifts when you when you'd go to an arrest on the ward and the patient was in the ward toilet because there's not the experience to recognize them earlier in that trajectory. And I think that comes back to a variety of things that we need to know about. So we, when we see patients at the end of that trajectory, some of this stuff might be really obvious. Their vital signs might be really obvious. But the early warning systems that we use are not perfect and research has shown us that. And in some cases, they do fail to pick up on patient deterioration early enough and sometimes they fail to pick up on it at all. And I think there's definitely something around the experience of of being a, a, an experienced clinician that allows you to pick up on some of this stuff earlier. Some people might refer to that as gestalt and there's a lot of debate about whether that exists as an individual entity in itself. The idea behind gestalt being that it's the sum of the parts not making up to as much as the whole, the whole being more than the sum of the parts. But I think there's an excellent chance that that might just be a summation of all your knowledge and experience and lots of micro cues that you're picking up on, but that you might not be able to even consciously recognize. So identifying that lack of sweating, back to that computer game example, the computer figure didn't, he wasn't sweating, but that was the point in the computer algorithm at which he was stopping sweating. And that was the point that people picked up that something was different just by looking at him. And I think there's probably a lot of that in medicine, a lot of little microcirculation cues that we can pick up on, a lot of things patients say, ways that they behave, things that they do that we might not necessarily be able to put into words if somebody initially sat down and said, how do you know? But actually over time, over experience and over our memories and particularly these formative incidents, they put together a picture where as we get more experience, we're able to pick up on stuff earlier in that patient's path. And I think it's part of that process is the mind doesn't see what they they don't know. They have they've not seen it before or put it together, then you miss the subtlety and the nuance of the preterminal patient. And we have all had experiences of a clinician, a nurse, a junior doctor saying, I'm just not happy about this patient, or you're in recovery and you're called to recovery and I'm just not happy with this patient. There's something I can't put my finger on that's telling me or warning me that this patient's really sick. And when you have the experience and you can put your clinical memory bank together, 
These are the sorts of things that are also really hard to quantify, but then also hard to communicate to others. How, how can I engender my concern to other clinicians that I need to form a resuscitation team to help this patient? How do I communicate what's happening other than just saying, I think this patient's dying? Part of that's about getting the relevant people to be able to help treat what's going on. If it's a bleeding patient that's bleeding to death, we need to engender this and engage the surgeons potentially to open a cavity and control the bleeding. And the same sort of process of how we do this is, is how we communicate this to others. Yeah, I think the way I would term it is how do you rally the troops, how do you rally the team? And sometimes because these signs that we're talking about particularly if they're still on the trajectory and they haven't quite fallen off the edge of the cliff yet, it's really hard to sell that case. And Cliff and I actually did a recent case of a bleeding patient and we walked in and within probably 40 seconds of our initial assessment, seeing that this patient was hypotensive, what was his pulse 60, Cliff? He was on two types of inotropes, his hands were purple, he had air hunger and we looked at one another and we both, you know, just through our eyes communicated, oh my goodness, this patient's dying. And now we had a task on our hands in a regional hospital to try and rally at three o'clock in the morning, every single person that we could within that emergency department to try and assist us to save this person's life. And Cliff used really clear, beautiful language, um, words to the effect of, I'm very concerned about this patient. This patient is dying. I need all of you to help us save this person's life. And it's, it's, it's simple language, but there is absolutely no miscommunication and it's bringing everyone together to say that everyone has to work together if we're going to give this patient any chance at all of surviving. And it was actually incredible. The entire team rallied and... I think we genuinely saved a life that night. Sometimes the patient gives you a massive clue and says, I'm dying, I'm going to die, this is it. Uh, words to that effect. And there's only two reasons patients tell you they're dying. Either they are dying or you gave them ketamine without any midazolam. So um, you should take it seriously. And uh, in fact, Brian, your guy, who's given us permission to talk about his case for education, I gather he, he told the team, he was going to die that day and there was some disagreement. Actually, I'll go back a step. As I walked back out of the ambulance bay, as they were unloading him back into the ED, I actually verbalized to our team. I just said, it's on. As in, this is going to get uh, quite real. This is a, a proper case. And I could not tell by looking at this guy as he was wheeled in as to what was wrong with him. He was agitated on the bed, kept moving around, and we will, you know, discuss how do we control these patients because this is a real issue in trying to control these patients to A, diagnose and B, do meaningful interventions when they're required. But he kept getting off the bed, taking the oxygen off, and he kept saying, I can't breathe. And it shows you how visceral, I suppose, response to impending doom is or death. It's not specific. It's not focal. They're not telling you where the pain is coming from. They're just saying things like, I'm going to die or I can't breathe. So this guy could potentially could have been a massive pulmonary embolus because he kept saying, I can't breathe. Or he could have had an pneumothorax. Who knows? But it, the, the ability to diagnose him clinically would have been extremely difficult. So, so what did you do? What did you do next? What was the first initial things that you did? So like all, a lot of us do, we have the ultrasound machine on, ready to go. And for those patients that are in severe shock, 
we start with a couple of big ticket items that we'd like to exclude. So the first thing I did when he got onto the bed was put the ultrasound echo probe straight onto his chest and lo and behold, he had a massive pericardial tamponade with a huge clotted pericardial tamponade. And in the setting that we were given, it was a type A dissection until proven otherwise. And so at that point you had a diagnosis how did you then control the situation and the patient and the environment and everything that was going on around you? So the fascinating thing is there, some people will not verbalize what's going on, but my, uh, again, coming back to Libby's point, my verbalization was this man has a massive cardio tamponade, he's peri-arrest, we need to do a number of simultaneous things at once, we're going to need to obviously relieves the tamponade and we're going to need to have a cardiac surgeon and a whole team bypass uh, team you know perfusionist cardiac anaesthetist mtp a whole range of people available so it was uh, an immediate challenge and in some ways when you see that diagnosis you you kind of feel to yourself oh gosh here we go going down the roller coaster now there's a lot to do controlling him was uh, a, a concern so there's a con- you know, often with agitated combative patients, we can anesthetize them um, to control them. But obviously, anesthetizing and giving positive pressure ventilation and anesthetic drugs to a patient who is essentially peri-arrest from a tamponade, I think would have put him into cardiac arrest. So that was something that's worth discussing, I think, because um, there's a couple of ways you could skin the cat. You could argue that you could give him a, a low low dose induction, high dose muscle relaxant induction and then get on with the procedure almost almost immediately or give him some uh, sedative for control so i i did choose to use a little bit of ketamine to get control he had lost vascular access pre-hospital but we managed to get a peripheral line in fairly quickly uh, and then we started giving him some aliquots of ketamine uh, for control part of that process is we need to be mindful of our drugs and our interactions and the way we deal with them, even our language and our voice and our interactions with them, human contact, hand on the shoulder, we're doing everything we can for you. This is a process where we're going to try and save your life. Even though they may or may not remember it, I think is useful for not only yourself, but also the people around you, the nursing staff, the medical staff, the orderlies, the the, the ancillary staff, the allied health staff, everyone around, family members. It's a really important thing that we can sometimes overlook, isn't it? Just a fascinating thing on that. I know um, I've heard Rick Dutton speak before talking about severe trauma and bleeding and how that's amnestic in, its, in, in itself and causes amnesia to the patient. I've had a good chat to this patient and he does not recall the previous day onwards and his brain is completely intact. So he remembers, he has laid down perfectly normal new memories um, since he woke up in intensive care but does not remember the previous day onwards, which I think was quite fascinating. But yeah, you're right. And you have a whole kind of aspect of, do you give them uh, some patholytic you know, opiates as well, even though they're trying to maintain their sympathetic tone? It's, it's a tricky one. Yeah, I think that's helpful to, for us to remember. And I, my, one of my talk and not quite die patients was somebody that I shocked out of VF 
I think 12 times before I managed to get him to cath lab. And he, when I saw him on coronary care the following day or the day after, he had no recollection of ever having seen me before in my life, in his life, which was good. So I think the title of impending doom is relevant because these patients have a sense of impending doom, but actually we have just as much of a sense of impending doom because we know what's coming. So I'm interested to know how you guys manage yourselves, maybe in the context of the zero point survey, which is something that we talk about on the course itself, isn't it? The idea of preparing ourselves, the team, the environment and the, and the patient as best we can. How do you guys prepare yourselves when these patients come in? What are your top tips? Well, I'll definitely use that structure, self, team and environment. And as we've alluded to before, sometimes if you're the one or, or one of the few with the expertise in the room, the challenge is getting everyone on the same page. But the other thing is that with expertise comes this database of previous cases against which you're comparing this new information uh, to see what it matches to. And you develop these heuristics, these shortcuts. So all of us here chatting today who work in HEMS will know that if you've got a shocked combative trauma patient when you arrive, if they're hemodynamically compromised or they're flipping like a fish, they're trying to sit up, you know they're going to be bleeding to death, they're going to have a tension in your thorax or a tamponade, right? It's a possibility there's some CNS agitation from a head injury, but if they're hypoxic, hypotensive, it's one of those other three things and you get busy. And similarly in the resus room, you need to uh, let everyone else in the room know what you're thinking. So in terms of the step up of the zero-point survey, we've prepared ourselves, team and environment, we're managing the patient, but then the up is all too critical. It's the update. This is what I think is going on. This is what we need to rule out. This is the plan. We're going to do a cardiac ultrasound right now to exclude obstructive causes, and we're going to cut, carry on giving volume until we've got more imaging or whatever. And part of the environment is setting up that resus bay. So any hemodynamic compromise, this patient with a BP of 60, there is no good argument for not having that ultrasound set up, ready to go um, to give you that diagnosis within a few seconds. As part of the step up for me and my welfare post these jobs, particularly if the patient doesn't survive and the patient does die on our watch, uh, a big thing for me and a big, uh, I suppose, a way that I can sleep better at night is to make sure that I put time and effort into being kind to the patient. That means being calm, explaining to them exactly what's happening, not persisting with getting them to describe what they're feeling when they're cerebrally agitated and unable to put it into words because all that's doing is adding to their distress. And I think that somewhere in this, you know, very dynamic environment you have to find the time to be kind to this patient because they may be the very last uh, words that they hear and they need to be kind words when we do have a patient in which we understand from injury pattern recognition that their death is inevitable but they're still talking and we may be about to anesthetize them for humanitarian reasons it's uh it's hard and it's sad but sometimes it's helpful to ask them if there's someone they want to talk to um, or someone they'd like to record a message for as a voice memo on the phone and giving them that opportunity um, is, is something that we'll, we'll frequently consider doing. For example, you know, a patient with a severe crush injury of the lower half of the body and we know that on release, despite maximal blood products, um, that there's a good chance of complete hemodynamic collapse if they've got uh, an untreatable injury pattern. So that's those are the tougher jobs that we 
really do remember. So uh, Libby's principle of being kind, first and foremost, is, uh, is absolutely critical in those patients. Another thing that I think is important uh, is just the physical examination. You know, we're big on ultrasound and vascular access and getting the massive transfusion protocol activated. But patients with different pathologies have different characteristic appearances clinically. For example, Libby mentioned the hateful eight from uh, cardiovascular collapse due to hemorrhage with the collapsed neck veins. And, but someone with obstructive shock like tamponade, massive PE, right ventricular MI with cardiogenic shock invariably have or almost always have elevated neck veins. And the patient with the bulgy neck veins who's not responding to fluids, we've seen many of those turn out to have pericardial collections uh, with tamponade on ultrasound. And after a while, you tend to uh, recognize that pattern then before you put the ultrasound on, and you can often predict the ultrasound findings. So we shouldn't forget to examine our patients as well. So just to bring this home then, we're kind of taught, I think, sometimes at medical school that patients with anaphylaxis or massive PE say they have a feeling of impending doom, but any acute life threat can give a feeling of impending doom. And patients will have a characteristic set of behaviors, things they do, things they say, and ways they look that are typical of those that are going to die within the hour. It's important for us to learn to recognize those and act on them as a team as efficiently and effectively as possible by effective use of a zero-point survey, shared update and plan, early bedside focus, vascular access, and control of the agitated combative patient, often using ketamine. Keeping simple life-saving interventions to buy time, but then having systems that allow you to access the definitive care. What do they do and what do they look like? They're often pale, agitated, combative. They have positional restlessness. They want to sit up, then they want to lie down. They're either asking for the bedpan or they've already been to the toilet somehow doing the death dump or the preterminal turd. They may have air hunger. They may have hemodynamics that are telling you they're an arrest is imminent, like a blood pressure of 60 or lower. You can disregard the lack of a tachycardia and they may have other characteristic clinical signs going with their pathology like distended neck veins. So that's the impending doom podcast, how to spot these patients, what to do about it. Um, Any final closing remarks or things we've missed out? These are really tough cases. So I would say that debrief afterwards is really, really important. And something that I carry with me from one of my talk and die patients who did die is I never got to find out what the cause was on post-mortem. So if you can follow them up when the outcome is not favorable, that's something that you can really learn from too. 